Well, here's a story for you. To learn new languages. This and that for the past three years. At a young age, I've experienced a whole lot. And a lot of stuff happening here. Traveling back and forth. Have you ever thought about the words you use? Have you ever pondered on the words other languages use? And have you ever wondered to yourself, how are these sounds made? I'm Maxwell Hope, and my goal is to try to answer this question. Hey, Average Joe. Hey, Maxwell. <laughs> so this episode, we're going to be talking about the ICPHS 2019 Congress that I just went to. All right. What What is ICPHS? Did I say that correctly? You did. You did. Okay. ICPHS or ICFIS. That's the other name for it. Okay. That does not sound disgusting at all. Yeah, ICFIS. It's like... It's like an ICFEST. Yeah. And so I was like, we don't want to be the ICFEST. No, um, ICFEST or ICPHS is the International Congress of Phonetic Sciences. Ooh. Yeah. We're a podcast about phonetics and you went to a conference. About. About phonetics. phonetics. Yeah, it's great. So I was there for a week and it ran August 5th through 9th. All right. I was the 19th one that they've had so it's been going for a while people call it the olympics of phonetics because it only runs every four years oh okay so the next one will be in 2023 and they announced at the end of the congress that it's going to be in Prague. so that's pretty exciting where were you this year this year uh we were in melbourne australia yeah down under down under or sound, sound under, under. Yeah, so this is my first time in Australia. Okay. We'll say that that flight from here is not fun. It was a 24-hour trip, essentially, right? Uh, yeah, and then plus then you cross the international date line. So then it's basically like you lose two hours of your life going over there. And I, I just wish that I had had more time to spend. Yes. Because I, it already took me like a week to get adjusted. The first day that I got there, I just slept. Mm-hmm. And so I got there on Sunday... I slept all Sunday, then Monday, you know, trying to get into the swing of the conference, but still very much jet lagged. And then Tuesday was my presentation. So I was going there to not only get to hear everyone else's amazing presentations, posters. At the Olympics of phonetics. The Olympics of phonetics. But also I was competing in the Olympics of phonetics. Not competing. No, I was just presenting. Now this is like a cooperative Olympics. Everybody wins. It is. Everybody wins. Um, and everybody did win. It was very good. So... So what did you present on? I presented on the vocal pitch and intonation characteristics of those who are gender non-binary. And my, so it's an international congress, so I should specify that I was working with native speakers of American English. I just wanted to specify that because non-binary people all over the world, just for our listeners too, like for those who might not know, because not everybody does know about non-binary people. Non-binary people are people who do not identify as strictly men or women. Um, They might identify as agender, genderqueer, genderfluid. And a lot of things that have looked at pitch and intonation have looked at men and women, including trans women and and trans men, you know, and 
have looked at their speech patterns, but not a lot has looked at non-binary speech. So you're looking at how people who are gender non-conforming are... Not the same thing. Not the same thing. No. Okay. So so cis people can also be gender non-conforming. All right. Yes. These are for people who identify internally. All right. Yes. Does that make sense? Yes, I understand. Yeah. Something that was really great too was, you know, I would ask, the first question I would ask with people coming up to my poster was, do you know what gender non-binary means? And overwhelmingly people would say yes. Yes. And that was so great. I was so happy to see that like a lot of people actually knew. Mm -hmm. And that was amazing. And we even had, there were some other presenters there that presented on non-binary people or transgender community in general, which is amazing. So even though, you know, it's like, I was sort of like, I wish that there was even more, but actually it's still very impressive that there was, you know, other researchers that are exploring similar topics. The fact that it's even there is like it's even of, there, right, is amazing. Yeah. But yeah. of course we want to see more of that. Yes. Because, you know, this is 2019. Right. I do want to just give a shout out right now to all of the organizers of ICPHS 2019. And in particular, I learned a lot about Aboriginal languages. So the theme of ICPHS this year was on endangered languages. And there was a lot of work done to promote preservation of and visibility of Aboriginal, Indigenous, and underdocumented languages. So the organizing committee did a fantastic job of incorporating all of that crucial research and really putting it, you know, kind of on the forefront as well. So this may be something I cut out of the podcast, but I do have a question for you. I know a little bit about the Aboriginal people of Australia, but do they have one language or do they have multiple languages? Hundreds of languages. Okay. In fact, I got to see a map of, I went on an Aboriginal heritage walk at the Botanical Gardens in Melbourne. And I had a wonderful guide and he showed us this map of Australia and all of the different languages. But not all of them are still spoken. Some of them have died out. Uh, Of course, there was a lot of discrimination against indigenous peoples and they were prevented from speaking their languages and forced to speak speak English. So unfortunately, you know, some of these languages have been lost. And that's why, you know, documentation and doing this sort of work and preserving them and invisibility is so important. Well, while you were there, you also managed to interview some of the other presenters yes. at the at the conference. Yeah. So my goal was to try to get languages that we don't hear about every day or interesting phenomena that we might not know about in various languages. And I wanted to just highlight those things because... Yeah, I'm at an international conference and I get to see people from all over the world. So I was like, why not take advantage of that? So I I did interview three different people. Well, four different people, but two of them are interviewed together. So. All right. Well, why don't we listen to the first interview? All right. So um, could you go ahead and just state your name for me? Maria del Sal. All right. Thanks. Uh, and do I have your consent to use this for the podcast? Yes. You okay, great. <laughs> Uh, so go ahead and just tell me a little bit about yourself and your research and what you presented here at ICPHS. Okay, so like I said, my name is Maria and I work at the University of Santiago de Chile 
but I am originally from Spain, the south of Spain. Uh, my research focuses mainly on social phonetics of Spanish, but also in English as a second language, especially all the problems that the students have with that. What I presented here was about Western Andalusian Spanish, which is my variety of the language. In this variety, we don't realize coda S, as in many other varieties of, in the world of Spanish. So could you give like that example again? Aha, uh-huh, yes. In particular, in my variety, this coda S, before voiceless stops, we don't actually pre-aspirate it. In a word like pasta, we wouldn't, we wouldn't say pasta, we would say pata. What's that? That's actually post-aspiration. So, post-aspiration. We've already talked about aspiration on this podcast, but can you go a little bit into what post-aspiration is? Yeah, first I want to just talk about aspiration more in general. So like you said, we did talk about it in the episode Don't Stop Me Now. And we talked about how this uh, aspirated stops are like have this breathiness or have this like little oomph afterwards. And so that is related to what Maria is talking about now, that post-aspiration, it comes after the sound. And just to clarify too, so there's this process where in some dialects of Spanish, there would be an S sound at the end of a syllable, and that's called a coda S. And so that would be like in mas. And in some dialects of Spanish, that might be pronounced like ma. Okay. With this little ha at the end of it. And that is sort of this aspiration at the end. So now she's talking about this change where the huh sound that comes, that came like before. So in the word like pata, we get the, uh, I can't do it as well as her. So please like listen to her for reference. But so she's trying to explain that that aspiration has shifted from before the stop. So on the pa. Yes. To the ta. Yeah. All right. Does that make sense? That does make sense. So now we have the post aspiration. So these stops would have longer voice answer times than any other stops in Spanish. Now in the particular context of these coda S plus T, there's a further phenomena now especially among the younger population, by which they actually affricate this uh, stop. Affricate. What, what is affrication? Is Af- that the right? Affrication, yeah. So affrication is a combination of a stop and a fricative, but now we would need to explain what a fricative is. Yes. But you know what a stop is. Yes, because of our previous episode, Don't Stop Me Now. Right, so a stop has a complete closure and release, we already know that. Then frication is the creation of noise by air passing through a very narrow opening or channel, which causes a turbulent airflow. So go ahead and make like an S or a Z sound. Z. Right. So you can kind of see that there's like this uh, narrow closure in your mouth, but the sound isn't being completely stopped, right? The airflow yeah. isn't being completely stopped. Okay. Yes. So those are fricatives. And unlike stops, they aren't produced with the full closure and then a release, but are produced with the narrowing and turbulent airflow. And so now what Maria is talking about is an affricate, which is sound with like both the stop quality and the fricative quality. So in this case, it turns into a t. So a T-S sound kind of combined. So the t is the stop and the s is the fricative. And we get t. Okay. 
And so she gave an example with the uh, the pasta example that becomes pots. Okay. What is this? If we go back to the previous example, pasta would now be said pazza, with a very strong application, particularly, like I said, among the younger population, 35-ish and, and younger. Now, what I found out in my research is that this is not the only context where you can find post-aspiration and application. That is, ST is not the only context. We also have other contexts which are stop plus T. Could be KT, PT, BT. And this way, for example, a word like exacto, exact in English, uh, would be said exacto. And I think this is particularly interesting. We think more or less a wild guess, educated guess. It's by phonetic analogy with the more popular context that I talked about before. But we don't really know. So I'm really excited to keep exploring this phenomena and to see why this is happening. I can advance you that is again younger population and I would say it's females that are starting this change. So young women are really on the forefront of that change. Yes. That's really cool. It's really exciting. Thank you so much for explaining your research. Thank you. All right, so we're recording. Plenty of background noise here because we're at the conference. Can you go ahead and say your name for me? Uh, Matt Carroll. All right, Matt Carroll. And do I have permission to use this recording for the podcast Hooked uh, Hooked on Phonetics and in relationship to ICPHS? Yes. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Um, So could you just give an overview of... A little bit about you, if you want, just a little spiel about your background, um, what your interests are generally, and then, uh, you know, you talked to me about your topic here at ICPHS, which I thought was really cool, so if you could introduce, like, the language, and then a little bit about, like, what you found, that would be great. Yeah, sure. So, um, I work on Papuan languages in southern New Guinea, specifically some ones spoken uh, right on the southern, south coast of New Guinea in the Indonesian part of that region. And so one of the languages that I've uh, worked on, the one that I've presented here at the conference, is a language called Ngolmbu. And that's a, a little language spoken by about, little in terms of numbers of speakers, it's spoken by about, uh, about 150 people, all who live in, about a, in a single village. And one of the interesting facts, and you can probably hear it when I say the name, although I don't perhaps say it like a native speaker, Ngolmbu, is it has these rather interesting segments, right? These are pre-nasalized stops. Uh, so, Max, what exactly is prenasalization? Prenasalization? Prenasalization. Prenasalization. Yep. Prenasalization refers to a brief portion of a nasal sound right before another sound. So, in this case, stops. But it's not due to two different segments. So, for example, we have like a, a nasal sound followed by a stop in English. So we have like the mba sound in member. So okay. we get a nasal sound mba, right? Prenasalization. That's not prenasalization in a sense. That has a pre. That has a segment that is before the stop that is nasalized. But that is not what we're referring to when we say prenasalization. English, just for reference, has another example like in mental that nta has a nasal sound followed by a stop. But here we're actually talking about where that prenasalization is part of the stop. 
So it's one segment. All right. And there's sort of this brief portion of this nasalization. And in the language that Matt is discussing and in other languages, this nasalization is kind of a feature of the stop. All right. So instead of it being mental, it'd be like mental or mm, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, I mean, it, we don't really have this sort of um, pre-nasalization as part of this single segment in English. But basically, instead of two different sounds, there's... It's combined. It's it's a sound that is combined with each other. Right. So we get this, pre, the pre-nasalization is sort of this brief, short, short period. Whereas in English, that would be like, a, that's a considerable length for it. Yeah. That nasal sound. And... As Matt is kind of explaining, we expect that when we have prenasalization, because in nasalization, we start to vibrate the vocal folds. It's a voiced sound. The nasal is voiced. As we have that voicing, we expect that that voicing would continue through the stop. So we do see languages where we have voiced stops that have prenasalization. But in this particular language, we actually see that we have the prenasalization and then we have the voiceless segment, uh, voiceless stop. And so that's really interesting. So that's what he means is a rather complicated way to produce the sound, which doesn't seem to do a whole lot. Right. I mean, it's really fascinating because like it shows you that languages can really behave in a lot of different ways and there's so much diversity. And even though, yes, this one process might be simpler, and they've chosen this more complicated process that's pretty freaking cool. This is uh, like a like a normal stop, like a P, like uh, except before you say the P, there is a period where you um, of, of nasalization, where the, where the velum opens up and you get this uh, nasalization. So it's like mm, What's interesting about this is this. I mean, as you well know, this is a, a really complex gesture to do with your mouth, right? So, um, so what, what makes it what makes it so complex? Well, there's just a whole lot going on, right? So you've got basically all of the articulation of an M along with all of the articulation of a P. So you, you, you have both of these two together. So, you, But in addition to this, uh, there's a, a characteristic about, say, the nasalization about M's that you have uh, sort of what's known as voicing, which is when your vocal cords vibrate, and this happens when you say something like an M or even when you say something like a B. So it's normally common for these to get, to be voiced for their entire thing. That you would say mb is much, much more natural, right? You just continue that voicing. Uh, what is interesting about Ngolumbu is that this voicing stops halfway through the articulation. So you've got this one sound that's mp, um, but for some reason you just, halfway through the sound, you that that voicing stops for the, for the for that part of the articulation. Right, um, so it's, it's kind of, it kind of seems like, uh, why would you stop the voicing? Yeah, exactly right. So normally, I mean, so a lot of people assume that you want to minimize the effort when you're using language, right? You want it to be as little effort as possible in a way that still, you know, makes meaningful contrasts, mm-hmm. right? A much easier and much certain, uh, so, okay, so here's a, one way of looking at it, right? These Prenasalized stops are relatively rare in the world's languages, but they do certainly occur. I think it's something like 15% or something like that, maybe even smaller, have prenasalized stops. However, only like 0.4 lang- 
percent of a, of a sample of about 2,000 languages in particular online database have these voiceless prenasalized stops. In this case, this is an extra sort of complexity, this extra complexity yet, so let me just gather my thoughts for a second. Uh, yeah, like you say, like why would you do it, right? So normally you want to you want to do something because it makes a contrast with some other element, right? Uh, in this case, this is this is not being contrasted, right? So normally you would say, well, you have you might have like a p versus a b. That's a distinction. In this language, you have a p versus an mp. But a much sort of easier way to do it would be to say mb. Uh, and the, the neighboring languages to this language, that's exactly what they do, right? So neighboring languages do that, and this one does not. Yeah, exactly. That's right. And this is a sort of, it seems perverse in some ways, right? right? Yeah, it seems like totally out of the blue. I, you know, it's, yeah. yeah, still, like, even when you walked me through your poster, I was like, wow, this is so interesting. I just still don't understand, you know, what, what drives one language to do this and others not to do that. Yeah, exactly right, right? And particularly when it's something that seems to be quite... You know, adding this extra articulatory effort for what doesn't seem to be buying them any communicative value. Right. Right. Exactly. So, prenasalized stops are considered okay. Well, these are a bit more harder to produce, but if you need to make, a, you've already got a contrast between P and B, and you need some extra sound. Well, you you know you step it up a bit and you use something that's slightly more complex to to articulate. Why go all of this far and add this additional step that's not making any extra contrast? Right. Right. So there's a bunch of you know, you can come up with a bunch of post hoc theories, right? And this is an area of the world where people are, it's incredibly linguistically diverse. Like this language is just, basically every village has their own language. And people all speak, people are highly multilingual, but not in a way where you've got a sort of dominant language. Traditionally people, everyone speaks three or four languages. Their parents probably came from different villages, so spoke different languages. Their people's own uh, partners would speak different languages. Their kids would grow up hearing multiple languages. So there are hypotheses out there that these kind of extra complexities can sneak in, in in areas where you've got this sort of highly multilingual egalitarian area because people are sort of trying to differentiate their cultures right. from their neighbours, right? Sure. But, you know, how you go about testing whether or not that's what's driving this or not, that's a... Right. Yeah. Well, this is great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I also wanted to say that, you know, for a conclusion to what Matt was talking about, while there are languages with prenasalized stops, you know, as we discussed, prenasalized voiceless stops are considered more rare. And in the case that Matt was talking about, we might want to think that the language will want to continue the voicing and started in the prenasalization. However, in this language, it doesn't continue and the stop is voiceless. But while this may be rare, there are still many other understudied languages, and it's possible that this phenomenon could be found elsewhere. Yes, you mentioned that there are, I think you said hundreds of languages in that area. Yep. And I assume that, you know, each one takes a considerable, considerable amount of time to study to try to find these little intricacies. Right. Alrighty, so, okay, so great. So go ahead and tell me your names. Okay, uh, I'm Charlie Redman. Uh, I'm Indranil Dato. Okay, and do you give me consent to post this in the podcast? Yes. Yes. Awesome. So go ahead and why don't you introduce yourselves and give a background about your research. 
Okay, uh, so I'm Charlie Redman. I'm a PhD candidate at University of Kansas, uh, and I focus mostly on speech acoustics and perception uh, and the link between the two. Uh, I'm Indranil. I <clears throat> teach at the English and Foreign Languages University in Hyderabad. Uh, I'm in the Computational Linguistics Department, where I teach mostly Computational Linguistics. But my interests are in speech processing, uh, especially uh, sort of the motor theories and theories that relate to the production and uh, perception. Awesome. Very cool. So what did you just present here at ICPHS? So we were looking at Malayalam, which is a language spoken in southern India. Uh, and they have three different T's is, is maybe what you want to say. So there are dentals and alveolars and retroflexes. So dentals produced at the teeth, alveolars just behind that, and then retroflexes where you curl your tongue back. So alveolar, we kind of covered in our previous episode. Alveolar, yeah. Alveolar, we covered in our previous episode. And I think you also briefly touched upon retroflex. But can we just go over all these three so we can understand like what why these three different T's are different from each other? Absolutely, average. So I think it's good to recap these things as well. So as we discussed, alveolars, you know, in our last episode on stops, an alveolar is a stop made with the closure at the alveolar ridge, which is just behind the teeth. That's a little ridge just behind your teeth. Dentals are stops made with the closure at the teeth themselves. That is, the tongue is touching the upper teeth. And retroflexes are stops made with the tongue curled back and making the closure right behind the alveolar ridge. So in this, in these three examples that we're going to be hearing about in this interview, we have sort of all of these stops are occurring in a very small s- area. Small area. It's all right near the front of the mouth. Yeah, the front of the mouth with the tip of the tongue. With the tip of the tongue. So I imagine to us, we'll hear this later on, but I imagine to us the, the sound will sound very similar because it's all happening in the same general area. But to the people who speak this language, they all sound distinct from each other. Right, exactly. And that's where they mention coronal contrast. So the exactly what you were just saying, coronal is just a broad term that means that the stop is produced with the front part of the tongue. And so the co- coronal contrast would be that the different coronal sounds are meaningfully distinct from each other. So if you produce a dental stop in a word, it would have a different meaning than an alveolar stop. And we we don't have that three-way sort of contrast in English, but in this language, they do. So it's a very uh, small space to be making uh, distinctions that listeners need to be able to tell apart. So we were looking at the acoustics and how you can track dynamically in the acoustics the difference between the three stops. So we were able to find uh, evidence for what uh, information people may be able to use to make that distinction. Uh, and yeah, I'll, I think I'll kick it over to Indrani. Yeah, so the interesting part of this particular contrast, so to speak, uh, which, which are called coronal contrasts, meaning that the tongue is kind of involved in some way or form, is that it, historically it's been there for the longest time, perhaps all the way from Proto-Dravidian, which would basically make it... So they mentioned Proto-Indo-European, and that is sort of like this, this reconstructed language, what we can imagine the parent language would have been 2500 to 4000 BCE. So this would be what people spoke. But we, we, what we can think maybe people spoke 2,500 to 4,000 years ago in parts of Asia and Europe. Okay. 
at least uh, 3,000 uh, year old contrast, uh, which has uh, fortunately only managed to persist itself in, uh, in, in Malayalam. Uh, the interesting thing is to be able to sort of, as Charlie uh, mentioned, to look at the dynamics uh, rather than sort of static effects that continents have in vowels and be able to sort of model the, the dynamics of the resonances. So I think I have an idea of what resonances is, but I want to know what it means in, in the field of linguistics. So what, out of, just to throw it back at you, yeah. Average Joe, what is a resonance in your mind? So resonance, in my mind, makes me think of music and basically different ki- different instruments have different kinds of resonances and you can you know play around with music in that way. I'm not actually a musician, but that's what it makes you think of different qualities of sound, essentially. Yeah, so that's not far off. You know, in phonetics, resonances sort of refers to the way that sound kind of resonates through a tube or series of tubes so in a way our vocal tracts from our vocal folds all the way to our lips either forms like one long tube or a series of tubes depending on where closures are constrictions are where our tongue is and in the mouth it forms a series of tubes and they have different resonances they resonate at different frequencies Ah. so very similar to different instruments might have different resonances and these various uh, sort of resonances influence the, the properties of the sound. So in particular, we can think of. So to throw it back to our previous episode, voicing is a kind of resonance, right? Because that is the, the closing or the opening of the vocal folds, which changes the resonance of our voice. That is, I, I totally understand where you can get that idea, but that's not actually what that is. Okay. So actually, resonances sort of go hand in hand with that, though. So our vocal folds act as the source of the sound. So we get that vibration starting at the glottis, and then that creates that fundamental frequency, that bass frequency. So without the vocal tract and just the vocal folds vibrating, we get a frequency, right? There, the vocal folds are coming together every so often, they're coming apart every so often. When we're voicing, they're coming closer together, they're vibrating. And then when it's voiceless, they come farther apart. So that way they're no longer vibrating. And there's no longer that frequency traveling through. When they are vibrating, so we have this source, we have this vibrating source that goes through the vocal tract, through these tubes, and it's filtered. Okay. And that causes these resonances. All right. In a very simplified way. In a very simplified way. So... To, instead of going back to the previous episode, to go back to earlier in this episode when we were talking about fricatives, when I was making that zzz sound, because my tongue is coming up, that's changing the resonance of the sound. Yeah, so fricatives actually have a series of tubes because you have that continuous flow of air going through, and especially in the zzz you have the voicing going. And so because you're changing the the constriction, where the constriction is, so zzz is going to be at that alveolar ridge. You can kind of feel that. Also have another very small tube that's created in front of that constriction. It's so short, it's so small, it's just in front to the lips. So that also creates another little resonance. Okay. 
that are uh, changing uh, as, as the consonant basically is produced and, and, and the tongue sort of moves in to make the vowel. Uh, so, the, so, the, the, so, the, so our job was here to be able to model the dynamics. Uh, so when you say resonances, is this because of like how far forward or back the tongue is creates these different resonances, right? That's right. So uh, when the uh, when these stops are being made, following the constriction, uh, when the constriction is released, the shape of the constriction and the way the tongue starts to move to uh, get into a configuration for the following vowel, uh, that is what produces a dynamic change in the shape of the cavity, uh, and that's what changes the resonances. Right. So notice that every time you change the shape of of, of a cavity of a of a tube. Uh, you change it, its resonance uh, properties, and those uh, resonances are what give you ultimately the, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the identity of that particular style. Uh, so there is a lot of dynamic processing of acoustic information that probably takes place uh, as humans perceive uh, uh, these sounds as well. Right, because you said this is a very like small area that they are changing right in the mouth, so it's like got to be really like you're really honing in on these small changes and right. could could you do you know how to produce these this three-way stop so I can it, I can we can demonstrate it or so I think neither of us are native speakers of this language so maybe we can both try and then uh, if it, we'll see. that's yeah. totally okay if you can't also yeah. but you're welcome to try yeah. so just so that the audience knows these are not native productions so there's uh, three words that are distinct in this sound so an example is patti patti so I think Indranil's a little better at it, but... <laughs> uh, well, that's because I do have retroflexion in my language, but I don't speak Malayalam. I, in fact, I, I speak Bengali, which is uh, not even in the same family, so... Uh, but I'll try to make the contrast, as Charlie said. So I'll go from alveolar to dental to retroflex, so... Because uh, that's easy for me. <laughs> so it'll, the alveolar would be patti, the dental would be patti, and the retroflex would be patti. Uh, these are very robust. That's because, as a foundation, we try to, I guess, mimic the original ones. But we may, we may probably fail. But this is kind of, you know, if I said this to a Malayalam speaker, they'd be like, "Yeah, these are seemingly very robust, but they'd, they'd get the get the context." Okay, great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So thanks for listening. I had a great time at ICPHS, and I want to just thank the people that we interviewed again: Maria Del Sas, Matt Carroll and Charlie Redman and Indranil Gupta. Well, I'm glad you had such a good time at ICPHS. And until next time, listeners. Hooked is produced by Maxwell Hope and Jeffrey Ferris. It is edited by Jeffrey Ferris. The role of Average Joe was voiced by Jeffrey Ferris. The music in this episode was Unwritten Return and Impact Prelude, which were created by Kevin MacLeod and licensed for use under Creative Commons. You can find Kevin MacLeod's music at his website, www.incomptech.com. Vocal samples were used from the International Dialects of English Archive and licensed for use under Creative Commons. You can find more example of English dialects at their website, www.dialectsarchive.com. 
Vocal samples were used from 50languages.com and licensed for use under Creative Commons. You can go to their website and learn another language for free at www.50languages.com.